Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we're going to do another lesson on the Incarnation, as it is that time of year. So let us... Mike, will you pray? Will you open our class in prayer? Would you be willing to do that? You should stand up, yes, and speak loudly. Thank you. Amen. Amen. So, what is a mystery? What is a mystery? Scripturally speaking, what is a mystery? That's your Sunday school answer. Jesus. The Word of God. Uh, Sandy, I'll come back to you. Two truths that live in tension. Two truths that live in tension. Mm-hmm. What's that? So God only knows and we don't. God only knows that we don't. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's getting there. Yeah. But God Himself is the mystery. Any right? It's the mystery. God Himself is the mystery. He's God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I mean, Vern Poitras a couple of years ago wrote a book entitled The Mystery of the Trinity. And by that, he means the incomprehensibleness of the Trinity. What we can understand about God must be revealed by God, and what is revealed even still doesn't give us a comprehensive knowledge of God because he's inscrutable, right? He is, in a sense, incomprehensible, Um, the infinite being comprehended by the finite. Uh, And so, mystery is is things that are hidden to us in their full meaning. Mystery also in the New Testament is spoken of uh, as things that once were hidden and now are revealed to us, right? The mystery of, of Christ and, you know, the 
Uh, things that were once in darkness have been opened up to us, and we know it, but it's still referred to as a mystery. And so sometimes mysteries are those things that we do have knowledge of and can understand, and Scripture uses it that way. But it also means things that are uh, deep, and God is deep and wide and high and will always, in a sense, be other and transcendent and incomprehensible to us. Even as we grow in our knowledge through an eternity of study, there will, be, there, there will remain mystery. Now, the, the, the topic that we're talking about today, incarnation, we talked about it last week or two weeks ago in a very specific way as how the incarnation relates to the scourge of abortion. Today, we're just more of a theological sort of proper look at the um, incarnation. And the incarnation is a mystery. We can't know everything about this. We're talking about deity and humanity. The God-man, right? The infinite and the finite together. And so there are aspects of this that are incomprehensible and remain mysterious. And sometimes theology builds fences. It can't be this, it can't be this, it can't be this, it can't be this, but then can say very little about what it is. Right? Sometimes theology is just building fences. You know, and it's got to be these four things maintained together, but we have no idea how they relate to one another. There's, a, there's part of that in the doctrine of the incarnation. And I'm stealing a little bit from a guy named um, Burkhoff. You've heard of him? Louis, Louis, Louis Burkhoff. Uh, Dutch theologian, and he writes about, uh, he, he did a lot of historical theology, and so he has books where he'll go through doctrines, but then he'll be like, here are the heresies that arose, and here's how the doctrine developed over the course of time, and so it's historical doctrine. And here's what he says about Christology, and that's what we're dealing with when we deal with the incarnation, is Christology, how, uh, who and what Christ is. And so, I just wanted to begin with this. The Christological problem, right? The problem. Humanity and deity. How do we make sense of that? The Christological problem can be approached from the side of theology proper and from the side of soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. How are we saved? Though the early church fathers did not lose sight of the soteriological bearings of the doctrine of Christ, they did not make these prominent in their main discussions. Breathing the air of the Trinitarian controversies, it was but natural that they should approach the study of Christ from the side of theology proper. The decision to which the Trinitarian controversy led, namely that Christ as the Son of God is consubstantial with the Father, right, of the same substance with the Father, 
And therefore, very God immediately gave birth to the question of the relation between what? Huh? They hear little tiny whispers. The divine and human nature in Christ. So they worked out Trinitarian theology, you know, in those early centuries, second, third, fourth centuries after Christ. Uh, Creed of Chalcedon came out, and that, and that had to do with the divine and human nature of Christ, right? The hypostatic union, it's called, divine and human together. And so first it was Trinitarian, and then out of the Trinitarian doctrine, which said that the Father and the Son are the same substance, you then had to deal with the further question of, okay, if they're the same substance, how do human and divine come together? It's simple. <laughs> he goes on, he says, the early Christological controversies do not present a very edifying spectacle. The passions were too much in evidence... Unworthy intrigues often played an important part, and even violence occasionally made its appearance. It might seem that such an atmosphere could only be produ productive of error, and yet these controversies led to a formulation of the doctrine of the person of Christ that is still regarded as standard in the present day. The Holy Spirit was guiding the church, often through shame and confusion, into the clear atmosphere of the truth. Some claim that the church attempted too much when it tried to define a mystery which from the nature of the case transcends all definition. It should be borne in mind, however, that the early church did not claim to be able to penetrate to the depths of this great doctrine and did not pretend to give a solution of the problem of the incarnation in the formula of Chalcedon. Chalcedon doesn't talk much about the incarnation. It talks about the hypostatic union, the two natures in one person, right? But it doesn't talk about the incarnation. It merely sought, and this is what I was saying earlier, it merely sought to guard the truth against the error of theorizers and to give a formulation of it which would ward off various unscriptural constructions of the truth. And then one more paragraph, he says this, the church was in quest of a conception of Christ that would do justice to the following points. A, his true and proper deity. Scripture clearly lays out that Jesus was God, right? So you got to maintain that. If you lose that, you've lost one of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. B, his true and proper humanity, right? If you lose the fact that he was truly a human with body and soul, just as we, our nature is, body and soul, then you've gone off the reservation, right? You're going you're gonna to end up with all kinds of improper views. C, the union of deity and humanity in one person. And that one person is important. Who was incarnate of the Virgin Mary? Who was incarnate? Who became incarnate? Jesus, the Son of God. No one said what I want to hear yet. That's too broad. 
And it's actually improper to speak of God being made incarnate. You have to be more specific. The what? God the Son. The second person of the Trinity became incarnate. The second person became incarnate. And when he was incarnate, it wasn't there was a human person and a divine person. There was one person. And the person of the Son of God, the second person of of the Trinity, assumed to himself a body and humanity. Okay? So there's one person. What we're dealing with here is the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate. So it's more proper. It's not wrong to say that God was incarnate, but it is if you have in mind the full Trinity. It was only the second person who became incarnate uh, through the womb of the Virgin Mary. Yeah. Wait, hang on. Let, can I finish? Let me... I'm, I'm right... I, I interrupted myself, and so let me get back on track. I'll come back to you. So we said his true and proper deity, his true and proper humanity, these are the points you have to maintain. The union of deity and humanity in one person, and then D, the proper distinction of deity from humanity in the one person. Two natures, one person. Divine and human in one person, okay? Two natures, not some sort of third thing. Not a, he's not human, he's not divine, he's like this third thing because the natures are confused and mixed up. No. And so he, he goes on, he says, it felt that as long as these requirements were not met or only partially met, its conception of Christ would be defective. All the Christological heresies that arose in the early church originated in the failure to combine all these elements in the doctrinal statement of the truth. Some wholly denied, some denied wholly or in part the true and proper deity of Christ, and others disputed wholly or in part his true and proper humanity. Some stressed the unity of the person at the expense of the two distinct natures, and others emphasized the distinct character of the two natures in Christ at the expense of the unity of the person. Okay, now that's a pretty heavy intro, but, what, but the point I'm making is they built these four fences, and if they weren't there in your determination of who Christ was and how the divinity and the humanity related, you weren't orthodox. But what exactly is it for the divine and human nature to come together? Um... Hmm. <laughs> yeah, go for it. One question which you kind of answered to it is it is Christ. It yes. is this concept we call Christ which emerges and fleshed out to us. It's not a concept called Christ, it's a well, person and being. We have this word yeah. for the second person of the Trinity of Jesus Christ, or Christ, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, what scripture would you take somebody to to prove the incarnation? Where do you go? Bible trivia time. Okay, so some of you are going to go to John 1, and what do we read in John 1? Okay. 
keep going, you got to get to the meat, quite literally. Right? It's not just one, 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 and two. You got to bring in verse 14 of John 1. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was God, and the Word was, sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's one of the primary verses you're going to go to. The Word was with God, his Father. The Word was God. He was consubstantial with the Father. And the Word became flesh. And by those means dwelt among us. Now that should boggle your mind. Right? That, should, that should be something in the morning when you wake up. You should be like, wow, praise God uh, for that amazing condescension on the part of the second person of the Trinity. Okay, so where else? Where else are you taking people? Is that the, is that the one everybody had in mind? Okay, uh, it's four. Galatians four. Let's read that one. Galatians chapter four. It is. But when the fullness of time came, Galatians four four. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So right there it states he was born of a woman. Born of a woman. So where does Jesus get his humanity from? From Mary. From an egg that Mary provided. How was... Okay, so how did conception... How does our conception work? Our conception works when there are an egg donor and a sperm donor, and the sperm and the egg come together, and one of those sperm breaks through the wall of the egg, fertilizes that egg, and we uh, and life begins right at that point. Okay, and that is not what happened with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What happened with him? And where do you go to prove it? <laughs> oh, you guys know this. This is not... Thank you. Thank you very much. Luke 1. Luke 1, let's read that section. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold... 
you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, Deity, you know, the Son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, he's the Messiah, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, an everlasting kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Right, so she's already starting to think, I know how babies are made, and how is this going to happen to me? I'm not married. Right? And here the Holy Spirit is coming and telling me that this is going to happen, or the angel has come to me and told me that this is going to happen to me. How is it going to happen? How can this be? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And then it goes on to speak of Elizabeth. And so the conception was by the Holy Spirit, right? There was not sperm involved here. The conception was by the Holy Spirit, and that egg of Mary's began to divide and grow because the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, whatever that means, right? Whatever that means, but it was conception by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus and received his humanity from that egg of Mary. He received his humanity from a real human being. Now, what important distinction do we now have to work through? No one. No one. No, 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 no. I heard it. I heard it. Yeah, sin. What about sin? What's the, um, one of the things, and we could go to the Westminster Confession, I think it's chapter 8, that says everybody who is born or conceived by ordinary generation, the coming together of an egg and sperm, gets something. What do they get? They get Adam's sin. They inherit that guilt and corruption, right? They inherit that. But Jesus is divine. He can't simultaneously be holy, utterly holy, and sinful. And so Scripture speaks of Jesus taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, does not mean that he inherited Adam's corruption, right? That means that he lived under the, the, um, the common infirmities that we all have by virtue of the fall. He got sick. He, he hungered, right? He knew pain. All those things that we experience by virtue of the fall. And so... Um, it is by this extraordinary generation that Jesus did not inherit 
the corruption and guilt of Adam's sin as everyone who is conceived the ordinary way does, okay? This is the doctrine of the church. This has been the orthodox teaching of the church down through the ages, okay? Make sense? Can you... Can, um, can we get into the mechanics of it? No, not really. We don't know how the Holy Spirit caused that egg to begin, uh, you know, cell division and those sorts of things. Um, but that is the testimony of Scripture, and that is a doctrine that we receive by faith in Christ, clearly laid out in the, God's Word. Um, so Christ was sent by the Father and conceived by the Holy Spirit. Sent by the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Even in his conception, he's doing the will of his Father because he's coming to take on that humanity to himself. And, uh, and so he's being obedient to his Father. The... Okay, where do we go to next? Other verses that you would go to, to that speak to the incarnation. Anything come to mind? I want to go back to the one you all quoted. Yeah, go for it. Sure. That's right. In Galatians, it says that he was born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was. Right. No, no. It says of Christ that he was born under the law. He had to obey the law. He, he was born as a man, as the second Adam. He had to live under the law in order to fulfill righteousness for our sake. So, yes, he was very much born under the law. Now, what Ro- the, there's a Roman Catholic doctrine that you may have heard of. What, are the Roman Catholic doc- what does the Roman Catholic doctrine teach about the conception of Christ? That Mary was immaculately conceived herself, and she did not inherit corruption. Therefore, Jesus could be born without corruption. Right? So that's quite different. That, that puts Mary in this other category. And I don't know a lot about the ins and outs of the doctrine and, and whatnot and the history and where it was, what lab it was concocted in. But I do know that that is not what the Reformed faith is held to. Um, that was soundly rejected and mocked by the Reformers. And, and almost, I would say, is sort of a way to uh, revise history so that you can have a female deity to worship. Okay? But that's not, there's no testimony from Scripture about that. There's nothing that we can find in Scripture that would posit that idea that she was immaculately conceived. But... Um, the, the, the way that Christ did not inherit the sin of Adam, that original sin, is by the 
uh, mode of his conception, which was by the Holy Spirit. What other verses come to mind? Any other passages come to mind on incarnation? Yes, Philippians 2. What does that say? Why did that come to mind? Excellent. Yeah, 2.7. Well... Um, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ, that's five, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be, to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, okay? A human nature. And so being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so good. That's another, another verse that talks about God and man smack next to one another. Okay? Other passages. Any others come to mind? Isaiah. Old Testament? Which one? Virgin will conceive? Uh, it's like 9 or 11 or... What is it? Well, let's see here. What is it? Okay. 9.6 says... And a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Yes, it is implied there, right? A son is going to be given to us, and he's Mighty God. Right? So it's, um, it is there. And then seven, uh, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God, make it as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name what? Which means? Right. So a son born of a virgin who is God and also a son. Um, so there it is in um, Isaiah 7. Prophesied six to seven hundred years before it occurred. Okay. Others? We've gotten Galatians, Philippians... John 1, Luke 1, uh, we didn't get Matthew 1, John 14, you say? Yes. What do you read there? Uh, in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Yeah, that speaks to the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son. Right, the deity of the Son, specifically. 
Um, Luke, uh, Matthew 1.20, right? We usually go to Luke for the birth of Christ, but even in Matthew's very short um, statement about the birth of Christ, it's almost like, you know, and, and then Jesus was born. It's very, very brief. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That's all of Matthew says about it. She was found to be with child by the agent of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Again, that, that, um, that conception by the Holy Spirit and that enfleshment or the, you know, carn, you know car, carnitas, you know, that just means flesh. Yeah. Right? Incarnation, that assuming of, of flesh that Jesus took on. Okay, so um, that's pretty good. Matthew 1, Luke 1, John 1. I'll deal with it. Acts 2.30, we didn't look at. What does Acts 2.30 say? It says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. And so just that prophecy there, that there would be a man on the throne of David, right, that would occupy that. Um, is to sort of tangentially speak to it. What about Romans? Romans 8. Therefore, uh, this is the beginning of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Right? So there again, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so this is the doctrine of the incarnation. This is the orthodox teaching of, of our church. And so um, I, I pulled a few statements about incarnation out of Burkhoff, and then there's a, another theologian, um, named Bovink that makes some careful distinctions on this and I want to share those with you now and then we'll just be quiet and we'll accept this doctrine by faith and the testimony of scriptures and we will adore where we don't have comprehensive knowledge. We will love even though they're mysterious elements to our faith which shouldn't scare us at all because God is almighty God, transcendent, incomprehensible. You would expect that there would be some mystery, some shortness of our mind to comprehend the infinite, right? So, um, so mystery should, uh, mystery seems to derail some people. They think that there has to be absolute, explicit everything down to the, the final, um, the final, you know, mechanics of everything. 
and that causes some people to um, be troubled. But were it like that, uh, we would have to have unfallen minds to even begin to comprehend that. So even if God were to reveal more and more, we would still be dopey in our sin and not be able to understand it. Okay, so he says, uh, this is Burkhoff. It was not the triune God, but the second person of the Trinity that assumed human nature. For that reason, it is better to say that the Word became flesh than that God became man. Okay, so he's just trying to draw out that distinction. If you say God became man, you're, you're like saying the Trinity became man, and you, you, you want to make that careful distinction. No, the second person of the Trinity assumed human nature. It's not that there was this person, this dude, and, and deity combined, and so there were two natures and two persons. No. No, the one person, the second person of the Trinity, assumed the flesh, okay, and eternally. Jesus still has a body like you and me, although glorified, right? And um, so he, he uh, no longer deals with uh, the uh, infirmities of the flesh as we would. Okay, um, all three persons were active in the incarnation. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Word becomes flesh. He is called the only begotten of the Father. So all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the incarnation. They're all active here, which, which you would expect because it's so wonderful, right? It's so incredible. It's a wonderful plan. It's... It's uh, mind-boggling, right? But all three are active in this. And of course, any action of one, all, all the others are doing as well. So it becomes tricky to even talk about that. But all three persons are mentioned as being active in the incarnation. God sent his son, right? And um, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and the Holy Spirit was the one who brought about the conception. He, Burkhoff makes this distinction. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. The incarnation is distinct from the birth of the logos, which is the word, which is the word for the word at the beginning of John. He actively participated in the historical event, and it assumes his pre-existence. Someone who has no pre-existence uh, cannot become incarnate. Someone who has no pre-existence, right? Like being born, um, you have a, a definite start, right? Well, he's pre-existent, and you can't become incarnate. You can't take on this different thing if you haven't already been existing. You would just be that thing. You would just be flesh, right? So he pre-exists as the Son of God, and that allows him to become incarnate. Subtle distinction, but again... There's only so much we can say about these things, and we kind of have to say them. Uh, Burkhoff then says this, The preexistent Son of God assumes human nature and takes to himself human flesh and blood, a miracle that passes our limited understanding. The supernatural can in some way enter the historical life of the world. The supernatural, right? The one who made the one who made the world 
can enter into that world, which is not a creative act that, that any of us can do. God can, and God did, right? He entered into that. And so um, let that boggle your mind. The incarnation was necessitated by the fall of man. It was not, and this is what Burkhoff says, it was not a part of God's idea of creation, but part of his plan of redemption. But in that sense, you know, you start getting into the, the prelapsarian and superlapsarian and how these things were laid out, and then you begin speculating about the mind of God and when this was planned, and so... Um, so I don't even want to go there, but we do know that, that the incarnation was conditioned by the, the, the fall of man, by the sin of mankind. That's, that necessitated it, okay? Burkhoff then says, when we are told that the word became flesh, this does not mean that the Logos ceased to be what he was before. Right, so he's the Logos, he's the Word of God, he's the second person of the Trinity, and then he, you know, ceases to be the second person of the Trinity because he's become this other thing. Nope, the second person of the Trinity assumes to himself the divine nature and stays the second person of the Trinity. Okay, I mean, you have to say it because if you don't, you begin to diminish God and you become a heretic. As to his essential being, the Logos was exactly the same before and after the Incarnation. Same. His essential being. Same. The verb agenito in John 1.14, the word became flesh, certainly does not mean that the Logos changed into flesh and thus altered his essential nature, but simply that he took on that particular character that he acquired an additional form without any change of his original nature. He remained the infinite and unchangeable Son of God. Again, the statement that the Word became flesh does not mean that he took on a human person, nor, on the other hand, merely that he took on a human body. The word sarx, flesh, here denotes human nature consisting of body and soul. The word is used in a similar sense in Romans 8, 1 Timothy 3, 1 John 4, 2 John 7. And so, again, those careful distinctions, we want to maintain that he is always and fully God, and he took on real human body and soul. So, like, he's a real man, okay? Christ assumed his human nature from the substance of his mother. Important point. If he brought his human nature from heaven, like if he just, suddenly there was this thing like, hey, I'm going to go down and be a man, then he's different. He's not like us. And then what's the problem? He can't. No. True. He can't represent us. He can't represent us. And so all of his work is not done on our behalf as our representative. He's just doing his own thing. He can't represent us properly before God if he's different. Conception was caused by the power of the Holy Spirit, not a meeting of sperm and egg. This is why the confession talks about ordinary generation like ours and extraordinary generation like Christ's. Only this makes a virgin birth possible. Um, it's rejected today because of a general aversion to the supernatural, right? People don't think in supernatural categories anymore. 
and I'll talk about this in my sermon this morning. We just don't think that a virgin can, be con- can conceive in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. We reject the supernatural. So that doctrine of the virgin birth, uh, Machen, you know, was in the early part of the 20th century, he was like, that was being dispensed with. Early 20th century Presbyterianism. They were like, nah, none of that. That's supernatural. We can't have that. And it just demolishes the Christian faith. Okay. Um, who was born? Who was born when, when Jesus was born? Not a human person, but the person of the Son of God. Thus, unlike all other human born, he was in himself free from the guilt of sin. Real man, but unlike all other humans born, because without sin. The Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Christ from its inception and thus kept it free from the pollution of sin. We could go to John 3 and Hebrews 9 to speak of that. Um, One, uh, I think I'm out of time. Yep. Um, Bavink not to give Burke off too much time. Boving says, Christ, the incarnate word, is the central fact of the entire history of the world. It should, like, when you think of that, Emmanuel, God with us, human and divine, representative nature, right? It is the central fact of all of human history, he says. The incarnation has its presuppositions and foundation in the Trinitarian being of God. The Trinity makes possible the existence of a mediator who participates in both the divine and human natures and thus unites God and humanity. For here, God remains who he is and and can yet communicate himself to others. He remains who he is but becomes comprehensible to us. In, in this condescension, this work of humiliation before us. So that's, we'll come back to it next week. Save your questions for then. I won't have answers. I think I've said what I can say about the incarnation, and, and there's a point at which you go beyond into speculation past what the scriptures say. But there is theology that, that we do need to build because we want, we want to put up those fences and not go beyond them. And uh, that is the way that this doctrine works. So meditate on these things. Go to these passages in the next few weeks as you celebrate Christmas and you try to wean yourself off of the treacly, saccharine, sweet, uh, unchristian assault that that Christmas has become. Think about it as the central event of God in history. And go to Scripture and meditate on these things and think about how wonderfully loving that was of Christ to do on your behalf for your salvation and your eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we glorify your name. We thank you for Jesus and his work. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. And we thank you that Jesus lived perfectly obeying your law and was a perfect sacrifice being divine and holy. And thank you that he knows what it is like. He is sympathetic. He knows what it's like to languish in the body. And Father, I pray that we would uh, 
we would rejoice in the incarnation, rejoice in God with us. And our thoughts would go there frequently in the coming weeks. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.